everybody. Welcome to another episode of Supernatural George. I'm Mittens, and today we're going to be talking about Season 7, Episode 21, Reading is Fundamental, written and directed by Ben Edlund. It's the second time that he has written and directed an episode, the first, of course, being 620, The Man Who Would Be King. Unfortunately, it's also the last time he will do that. I love it personally, when a writer gets to direct their own script, because it feels like we're getting a truer version of their story somehow, you know? They're involved in more layers of the production. Plus, who's going to argue with Kevin Tran? I also know a lot of people have many issues with the depiction of Cass in this episode and for the rest of the season. He's been called Crazy Cass, and more recently, Honey Cass, And while I appreciate those sorts of shorthands for his behavior and have used them myself, I personally think of this version of Cass as being completely overwhelmed by guilt and deeply, deeply in denial. He's struggling to even face the consequences of his own actions. And he also talks about what he did in the third person, trying to distance himself from it and refusing to fully engage with reality again. But I do have a strong appreciation for the metaphor of angels and heaven and bees and honey and humanity that I may or may not talk about to my own satisfaction here, but will definitely link to posts about it in the notes for this one for those interested in reading more. This is also where we meet Hester, furious at Cass for everything he's done, and furious at Dean for being the cause of all of Cass's problems. The very touch of him corrupts, and gosh, that's a lot, isn't it? It's not exactly helping Cass recover. We also have the return of Meg, having served as Cass's caretaker in the asylum and now tentatively working with Team Free Will, and the cracking open of the Leviathan tablet in what feels like an ominous act. The Winchesters are actively choosing to crack open a whole new can of God power level worms. I feel like a specific Homer Simpson quote belongs here, though Homer said it about alcohol. It's the cause of and solution to all of life's problems, because really isn't that what free will is? They don't know the consequences of choosing to go down this tablet road, what it would lead to with the imminent discovery of demon and then angel tablets, and then the problems those tablets would cause them in future seasons. All they know right now is the answers they need to stop the Leviathan might be inside this one weird lump of clay, and cracking it open is pretty much the only choice they have in that moment. It's ironic that Chuck keeps trying to use their own free will against them like that, isn't it? So he can blame them for all these problems arising later on. Like, you made all those choices. It's not my fault you did these terrible things. And the fact that it activates a God-level power on Earth as it's cracked open, and Kevin Tran effectively loses his own free will and control of his own life in the process, is really something. Something awful, but it's definitely something very Chuck-like. I think we'll also need to talk some about how I understand the power of the tablets to function in general. Because they are among the most powerful artifacts of God's power on Earth we've ever seen. 
In case I forget, I'll link a few posts on those too, because there's probably just going to be a lot of links on this one. We also get a lot of very painful insight into Dean's relationship with Cass, how he sees angels in general, and we'll discuss one major reason Dean spent so long holding Cass at arm's length. He breaks everything he touches, right? And here he feels very personally responsible for and stands literally accused of breaking Cass into what he's become now. And as I mentioned at least once in a previous episode, the end of season seven really is a major turning point in how Cass's story is told. And I love that for all of us, because Cass's entire character arc becomes a much more integral part of the story here. So before I run off along another tangent about that, let's get to the then segment. We open with the reminder of Sam's season-long hallucifer issues segueing into Meg saving Dean from a demon and wondering where he found poor dead Castiel, who doesn't even know who he is. Which might be our last reminder in canon that we don't have any idea how Cass came back to life either, or any of the circumstances surrounding it, and this show is just never going to explain it. Regardless, the three of them road trip back to the asylum, and Cass can't heal Sam but he can take Sam's soul damage into himself. Sam's fine again, and now Cass is catatonic in the asylum, with Meg left behind to watch over him. We then switch to a Leviathan update about Dick's archaeological digs, Dean snagging the item he found from the airport and switching it out for a borax briefcase bomb. But as yet, they have no idea what's inside the clay brick they stole. Which brings us to now. We open on a montage of a kid named Kevin Tran and all his various awards on his bedroom wall. He's obviously an intelligent and driven kid practicing the cello in neighbor Michigan. That's intercut with Sam and Dean in an abandoned building in South Chicago, right near where they stole Dick's brick, where they are now squatting. Kevin's on a crazy self-imposed schedule, panicking about getting into Princeton, and his girlfriend calls and he laments that he has nothing to say in his college essay. It's a blank page. Poor Kevin, he wished he had something interesting to say about himself, but he's likely going to regret that in a few minutes here. Channing tries to tell him that one day college isn't going to matter anymore, and he thinks she's nuts. Unfortunately for Kevin, she's really horribly right. Meanwhile, Sam and Dean are busy chiseling out whatever's trapped inside Dick Roman's caveman Lego, and the first time Dean whacks it, they hear thunder, which isn't at all ominous. Back at Kevin's, looking at his still-blank college essay, lightning flashes outside his window, too. Dean hits the brick again, and we get more thunder. He stops to ask if that sounds like someone saying, no, wait, stop. But he continues hitting it anyway, lightning and thunder getting more intense with every hammer blow, and Kevin even notices how weird it is. Standing in his own room as Dean breaks the tablet free, Kevin is struck by weird lightning, lifted off the floor, and left passed out on the floor with glowing eyes and a vision of the weird tablet that Dean's now holding. And then we cut to the title card. 
After the title card, we cut back to the asylum, where Cass is unconscious in bed while Meg reads a magazine, and from one weird lightning flash to the next, Cass sits up in bed. At the GeoThrive construction site, also known as the abandoned field that Bobby died to give them coordinates to, Edgar is working on the plans for the people-murdering machine when he gets a call from Dick and wonders aloud why anyone would choose to be named Dick before he answers. The next morning, Kevin wakes up, still on the floor, surrounded by broken glass, when his mom calls to wish him luck on a test he was supposed to be at school already taking. He runs around panicking, ready to rush over there, but his eyes flash bright gold, and he gets another vision of the tablet, and immediately changes direction. This might be a good moment for me to stop and ramble about the tablets for a moment, or at least my understanding of what they are and how they function, because it will become important again in the future. Kevin is affected by this the second the tablet is, quoting Cass from later in this episode, freed from the vault of the earth. He would have gone on to live as normal, unaffected by the supernatural life if they'd never hacked it out of the clay. But again, nothing on Supernatural ever stays locked up. It's like Chuck conveniently plants these sorts of landmines for them to stumble over occasionally, making it seem to them like this was entirely their choice. Sam and Dean and Cass all accept personal blame for breaking these things that were designed to be broken under these specific circumstances. Because did they really have another choice? Sure, they could just walk away, choose to ignore all the problems they're facing, and just let the world end. But they're just not that kind of people. They will put themselves at risk without question to potentially save the world again, every time. But the tablets have a unique level of God power. Even in the Bible, God speaks creation into being with words. So these stones are not only on the level of like hands of God that we'll learn about in season 11, but they are concrete representations of creation itself, imbued with all the words and spells that brought existence into being, but with their own God-level power that, just in being revealed to them, begins to assert that power in the world. It's as if the tablet itself requires a caretaker, and chooses a keeper to be under its thrall, in addition to causing widespread heavyweight-level omens. Most of the country experienced that freak storm. The power grid is messed up across half of North America, and every woman in the last month of pregnancy within a hundred-mile radius all went into labor at once. These are rocks with God-level powers of their own, But like Cass will be chosen the second the angel tablet is broken open a season from now, Kevin is chosen in this moment. Because yes, the tablets pretty clearly do exert this sort of control over their chosen guardian. And I feel that's very important to remember. It strips away the guardian's ability to choose their free will. Cass didn't choose to run with that tablet in season 8. Yes, the Angel Tablet will eventually allow Metatron to tap into its power to perform God-level tricks, 
But that's also a function of the fact that Metatron transcribed those tablets in the first place and knew more than anyone other than Chuck himself how they worked. Poor Kevin, poor Cass, and poor soulless Donatello are simply enthralled to them. I will have more to say along these lines when we get to Demon Tablet next season and the Angel Tablet, but suffice it to say for now that it was the Leviathan Tablet that awakened Kevin's prophet powers, and he was never really meant to read any of the other tablets. They're not the same, and he might translate this entire tablet in a matter of hours, but he will struggle for months and suffer horribly to read the other two. Because it had to be his choice, you know? He was getting all the no-stop-don't signals and just plowing through them by choice. But again, we'll talk about that in Season 8. I just want people to be aware of it now so it can kind of be simmering back there. Back at Sam and Dean's squat house, a cup moves and Dean wonders if it's Bobby. Despite getting an EMF reading, Bobby's too drained from battling Dick in the last episode to do anything more than that right now. Sam can't figure out what the writing on the tablet means, so Dean wonders why Dick secretly funded all the digs to find this rock. They decide to hole up back at Rufus's cabin now that it's safe again. You know, now that Charlie deleted Frank's drive that the Leviathan stole that had all of their hiding place locations on it. Until they can figure out what this rock is. Before they head out, though, Meg calls to tell them that Cass is awake again, but not exactly the same as he was before. She didn't call immediately when he woke up because she's been too busy Cass wrangling, so Sam and Dean head back to the asylum instead. At least Indiana isn't that far from Chicago, but they do also realize that Cass woke up at the same moment that they broke open the tablet. Which brings us back to poor Kevin, trying desperately to drive while having constant flashes of that tablet. And constant flashes back and forth between Kevin Tran, the kid who's scared about what's happening to him, and the glowy-eyed certainty of the mission the tablet has set him on. His poor girlfriend is worried for him and calls him, but he says he's not allowed to stop and just ignores her, kind of puts the phone down. You can still hear her talking in the background. At the asylum, Dean's worried about what might be left of Cass, if it might be more of Sam's hell damage, and what Cass might even remember. An orderly tries to stop them from going in, but Meg turns up and fetches them and brings them back to Cass, who's wearing his now clean coat over his white hospital scrubs. And we get a heartbreaking face journey from Dean as he has one moment of hope that Cass might be okay when he says, hello, Dean, until Cass's only reply is asking Dean to pull his finger, like he's learned the funniest joke on earth. I am murdered every time by Dean's reactions as he tries to humor Cass, thinking he's going to get a fart, but then instead all the lights explode and Cass gives the creepiest little laugh in the dark as Sam and Dean realize just the sort of chaos they are dealing with now. Meg casually fetches a lamp so they're not sitting in the dark, and Sam and Dean get caught up on Cass. He remembers everything still, but when they try to get answers from him of any sort, he immediately deflects with his own observations that he witnessed the grand plan in the path of a honeybee 
When Meg agrees he's incoherent and, her word, useless, Cass begins rhapsodizing about her. Sam tries to keep him on topic, but as soon as they show him the tablet, Cass understands what it is. It's the word of God. He might not be able to read it. It's not for angels to read, but he seems glad that Sam and Dean freed it. He even hugs them. And I think that's an interesting point. Angels aren't given the power to read the word of God, just to obey it. They are inherently creatures of obedience. They don't inherently have free will. They are bound to the word of God the same way that the tablets are and the keepers of the tablets are. There's always trade-offs to having power in this universe, and whatever spark of God's power that angel grace is, I've always seen it in much the same way as whatever spark of God's power is imbued in his very word itself. And rather than go off on an hour-long tangent on the nature of angel grace versus what a human soul is, I'm going to cut myself off here. But this will come up again in this episode, so I wanted to drop this little breadcrumb. I also promise not to go off on an hour-long tangent about it then, because I've written like half a million words about it, not exaggerating that, and folks can wade through my tags on Angel Grace if they so choose. When Sam asks what Cass means, instead of answering, he starts spouting irreverent nature facts about cat penises. He's still holding the tablet, though. And when Dean begins to get frustrated with him and ask him for help, Cass recognizes the handwriting of Metatron, the angel who took down dictation while creation was being formed. Meg then wonders why they have the word of God at all and wants to see it for herself, but Dean orders her to back off, not in a very polite way. They argue about it, and Cass mutters that he doesn't like conflict and disappears dropping and shattering the tablet on the ground, and leaving Sam and Dean baffled and distressed. Meg calmly explains that he doesn't like conflict, and probably fled to the day room. And that largely sums up Cass's current mental state. He's actively running from all of his problems. When he can't deflect, he flees. He doesn't want to take responsibility for anything not for all the problems he's caused that led them here to their leviathan mess, nor anything else. He doesn't want to have to confront his own guilt about the terrible choices that he has made. His own burgeoning free will terrifies him, which is another reason he focuses on the bees, that orderly pattern that he can recognize and not even have to participate in. Dean goes off to manage Cass, leaving Sam behind to collect the pieces of the tablet. Sam still refuses to tell Meg what they're up to, in no small part because he really doesn't have any idea himself yet. So Meg just tells him that she'll just leave and take her angel with her, and she walks off. Sam leaves the tablet pieces behind in the bag and chases her down. Meg asks who Sam thinks Cass would choose to go with because he owes her for staying with him and watching over him. Sam points out that Cass owes them a lot, too, and Meg suggests that Sam start working on him until Cass starts crushing on him, too. Sam asks what she even wants with a broken angel, and we see a side of Meg that we've never really seen before. 
She's desperate for protection, which is just a little reminder that Crowley is also out to get her, and the rest of demon kind wouldn't hesitate to hand her over to him. Their chat is cut short when they hear a noise from Cass's room. When they get back there, the bag with the tablet is gone, and we cut to poor Kevin running away from the hospital with the bag. Back in the hospital day room, Dean finds Cass quietly sitting alone at a table and mentally psychs himself up to face him. Outside, Kevin breaks into a dead sprint trying to avoid Sam, running around randomly until Meg clotheslines him. With a glance, Meg knows he's not a demon or a leviathan, and poor Kevin still has no idea what he is, other than he's Kevin Tran and he's an advanced placement. And he's also terrified that they're going to kill him. Sam stands him up and tries to take the bag with the tablet from him, but Kevin quite literally cannot let go of it. And again, this bears remembering about tablets and them giving their chosen keepers significant powers. At least Sam realizes this is a mystery to solve and not an antagonistic situation. Speaking of antagonistic situations, we cut back to the day room and the hurt is plain on Dean's face as he joins Cass. He opens by asking Cass if he realizes he just broke God's word, and Cass looks downtrodden, but he doesn't have anything to say about it. Like, oh good, just one more crime to throw on my pile of unforgivable crimes. Dean softens a bit at this and sits, and asks if Cass is like this now because he took on Sam's soul damage like Dean feels guilty that Cass would have taken that on himself. Cass says it took everything to get him there. It wasn't just the soul damage, but all of it that he now feels guilty for. He knows Dean wants different answers, like there should be some tidy explanation for all of this. And Dean gruffly says, no, he just wants Cass to pull himself together to help them hunt the Leviathans. Dean pulls back on his tone a bit, not wanting to upset Cass too much, because he knows what happens when he does, but he still needs to know what's going on in there. He asks if Cass remembers what he did. He's not accusatory, he's just probing to see how much of Cass is actually back online. Cass serenely picks up the box for the board game, Sorry, and holds it up as if that was his answer. He gives the box a shake, and the game is instantly set up on the table between them. And he even asks if Dean wants to go first, as if Dean had things to apologize for. Back in Cass's room, Meg is delighted by this random kid who has no idea what's even going on or why he was compelled to show up here and steal the tablet. All he knows is that he's supposed to keep it, but he has no idea what it even is. Sam tells him to open the bag, and Kevin pulls out two of the pieces and puts them back together, and they magically stick in the fracture men's, which Sam couldn't stick them back together like that. He picked up all those pieces and tried to put them back together. This is Kevin's ability, and a sort of proof of what he is in relation to the tablet. Back in the day room, Dean and Cass are actually playing sorry. Dean is trying to humor Cass, but Cass is just rambling about how they weren't sure which monkeys were going to succeed. Cass had been backing the Neanderthals because of their poetry, 
but Homo sapiens won out, eating the proverbial apple and inventing pants. And Dean is about at his limit for the rambling. He realizes he's not going to get much real help from Cass, and asks where they can find Metatron, since the guy who inscribed the tablet could probably help them figure out what it is. But Cass interrupts Dean, telling him that he has to move his playing piece back to the start. And that's kind of the general tone of their entire conversation. It's not actually accomplishing anything, and Dean is just repeatedly reset back to start. He moves the piece, but then pleads with Cass because it's important, and Dean needs his help, because Metatron could help them stop a lot of bad. But he does grudgingly continue playing. On Cass's next turn, he again rambles, but this time using the game as a direct metaphor, describing the universe as sorry, engineered to create conflict, and as he sends another of Dean's pieces back to the start, he asks why he should prosper from Dean's misfortune, as if the game itself was all that was important here. He very seriously tells Dean that these are the rules, and he didn't make them, he's just playing by them. And Dean has just about had it. Holding on to his temper with his fingertips here, he tells Cass that he made some of the rules when he tried to become God, when he cut the hole into purgatory. And despite Dean offering Cass that olive branch back in 717, when Cass first remembered everything, they never did get a chance to begin building their relationship back up afterward. There's been no healing yet. Now that Cass is awake again, he isn't even trying isn't even acknowledging any of it. Rather than replying to Dean's accusation, Cass just tells Dean that it's his move in the game again, and Dean loses it. He knocks the entire game off the table, but almost immediately calms himself again. He tells Cass to forget the game, and Cass says he's sorry, and you can practically watch Dean's heart fracture in real time as he tells Cass He's not sorry, he's playing sorry. And it's equally clear that Cass doesn't really understand that distinction. This is not the sort of rift that a simple, half-hearted, and unmeant apology will suffice. Just fixing Sam was not enough. The whole world is in danger because of the consequences of Cass's choices, and Cass refuses to acknowledge any of it. Dean is one of the most forgiving people on the planet, and he would accept a casual sorry for, like, stealing his last beer or, you know, throwing a red sock in with his laundry. But he struggled with what Cass did for the entirety of Season 7. This is a deep betrayal that will require any sort of consistent effort to prove his contrition for Dean to forgive. Back in Cass's room... Kevin reassembled the entire tablet, and we see it through a shaky and blurry camera angle as we hear a weird ringing tone as Kevin studies it. Kevin asks what a leviathan is, and Sam is shocked that Kevin can read that tablet. It's apparently about how leviathan came to be, and how God locked them up far away, like in jail. He looks up at Sam with a dawning horror, and he knows that leviathans are real. Poor Sam has to confirm that, yes, they're real, and they're here. 
Sam asks if there's anything on the tablet about how to kill Leviathans, because, yeah, that has been a problem for them. Kevin keeps looking and says it's not like actual reading. It's hard to focus on it for too long. And Meg's eyes flash demon black. The lights flicker, and Kevin looks up at her and must suddenly see her true demonic face because he recoils in terror from her. But she's not their current problem, no matter what she actually looks like, and Sam urges Kevin to calm down. Glass shatters, and two angels appear in the room. One of them flings Meg into a wall, all while Kevin looks on, terrified. Back in the day room, Cass is crouched down, picking up the scattered game pieces, while Dean grumpily watches. Cass looks up with a look of wonder on his face and tells Dean that Sam is talking to angels. Cass might be pleased about this, but nobody else is. Back in Cass's room, the pissed-off angel orders Sam to step away from the prophet. And all of a sudden, we all know exactly what Kevin is and why he was called to the word of God. The woman orders the other angel to kill the demon and her lover, meaning Sam. And when he approaches to throttle Meg, she waffles on about that like, oh no, he's not really my lover. She slices the angel's hand open with an angel blade. The woman charges toward Meg, asking where she got an angel's blade, when Cass flaps into the room like it was old home week, and he's delighted to see Hester and Anias. Anaya seems equally surprised and delighted that Cass is alive, but Hester is just even more pissed off. She demands answers for what he did in heaven before he disappeared. She asks what the hell that was, and Cass replies, far too unconcerned for his own good, well, rude for one thing, and he is entirely unprepared for what to even say to them. Anias asks where he's been, and Cass doesn't have any good answers for them, but stutters over where to even begin. He tries to the pull-my-finger joke again, but the lights are still broken from last time, so they'd need to get some new ones first, and this time it'll be funny, as if Cass realizes it wasn't funny last time either, but he thinks they'll just be able to look back on all of this and laugh, and nobody is laughing. Hester realizes that Cass is insane, Dean has finally arrived out in the hallway, though, since he had to walk after Cass zapped himself back up there. Dean had been busy out there, too, drawing an angel-banishing sigil. He gives Cass the heads up and then activates it, banishing all the angels and giving them all a few hours before any of them will be back. And uh, I guess I won't even talk about how he's like heads up sunshine to Cass. Yeah. Dean's first question is, like Hester, wondering where Meg got an angel blade. She replies that a lot of angels died this year, which is also a good reminder that Cass was the one to kill most of them without having to say it so directly. But poor Kevin has finally lost it and starts yelling, What's happening? And Dean, to this point, had no clue Kevin was even there. He asks what he is. Sam hesitates for a second before replying, It's Kevin Tran. He's an advanced placement. But he gets a sort of intro talk to the world of the supernatural. He's horrified that leviathans are real, but also angels with wings. 
And Sam here says that no, angels have no wings, no anything. To which Dean replies that they don't have junk, they're junkless. Going back to that old chestnut from when he first used it on Uriel. And I know the knee-jerk reaction here is that Sam should know they have wings. He's seen the angel wing display back in 615 The French Mistake. Why would he say they have no wings? And I've personally chosen to believe that Sam was being incredibly literal in an academic sense, that angels are manifestations of celestial intent, and that humans can't generally perceive their true forms. And the wings are just not actually part of their true form in that sense, but something they can manifest as a sort of threat display or identification purposes for humans. And I mean, I got no other reason for Sam being slightly dense here when he actually has seen Cass's wing display, even if it was just in shadow, and I'm choosing to believe that he meant they weren't corporeal in a way that humans can understand, and moving on. Dean starts talking in Dean references, asking Kevin if he can read the chicken scratch on the god rock, and if there's a how-to-punch-dick recipe on there. Kevin has no idea what he's talking about, but he does say that yes, there is an in-case-of-emergency note on the tablet. Kevin then asks what they meant by profit, and Dean groans like, oh no, not another one. Kevin doesn't want to be a prophet, and Dean agrees that no, he absolutely does not. Meanwhile, Meg tries to bring them around to their current predicament and how they should all start running before the angels come back. Dean doesn't think that Meg should be coming along for that ride, and she again explains that she's also on the angels' radar, and there's safety in numbers. So they all head out to Rufus's cabin, with warding sigils painted on their current crap car, in hopes that it keeps the angels at bay. They stop for gas and snacks, and an ad for Biggerson's plays on the convenience store TV. They've got a pie bar, like a salad bar, for pie! And wouldn't Dean just love that if he wasn't sworn off Biggerson's for life? But then the news cuts back into a story about Kevin Tran's supposed abduction. His family car was missing too, and based on what he told Channing as he drove, that he'd been chosen by birthright. They suspect there might be cult involvement in his abduction. The feds are on the lookout for him though. And that is definitely a concern to two guys who are supposed to be dead <laughs> and serial killers <laughs> with Kevin in their back seat. Meanwhile, out in the parking lot, Meg notices another problem. Two demons just loitering there who spot her. She doesn't say anything to Sam and Dean about it, though. Later that night, Kevin wakes up and is startled by Meg again. He's lamenting his life, his future, his girlfriend... When Meg's phone rings, it's Cass. He's at a dog track in Perth, surrounded by unhappy dogs. But Meg gives him their current location near St. Cloud, Minnesota, and Cass appears in the back seat between her and Kevin. Kevin is shocked and then asks if he's one of the angels. Cass just reaches over and boops the prophet's nose before turning to Meg to ask if she's hurt. Dean at least tries to get right to the point, asking who those angels were. Cass says they're from his old garrison, and apparently Hester has taken over. He starts rambling again, 
that they were assigned to watch the earth, and often it was boring. Cass then says he was their captain, and says to Meg, isn't that strange? And strangely, this is the only time in canon that Cass ever says this about himself, that he was in charge of anything like that. The closest we ever saw to him in a leadership role was horrifyingly during season six, when he was sort of thrust into the role as leader of the opposition faction in heaven, and when he was Godsdiel. But I hardly think he would talk about that as being a captain. Outside of that, we saw him briefly in a role that could be interpreted as being in charge of, or at least in a partnership role with Uriel before he was demoted. But even then, we know there was much that the upper management just didn't share with him. This notion that Cass was somehow in a strong leadership position sort of goes up in smoke when you look at the rest of canon. Yes, he's good at leading when he's not completely deflecting, but he mostly doesn't want that role. Other angels keep pushing him into it against his will, though, choosing him to lead them rather than him actually wanting that job. Yes, he's a tactical strategist and a battle-hardened warrior, but that's not what he really is or wants to be. I consider it along the same lines as as a sort of Ben Edlund canon, and I love the guy, don't get me wrong here, where he had Cass talk about how he was a seraph, and we only ever hear that word once more in canon, and it's related to another angel of the same level as Cass. So it's like trying to put these terms from our universe and how they're understood in like Christian and canon in our universe is just so pointless because it's really truly meaningless in actual canon. The hierarchies in heaven just get bent to whatever narrative needs to be told at the time and whether Cass is an underling or the boss of anybody is really just crapshoot if you try and look at it big picture wise. So I think that's why he says, isn't it strange here? And it's just easier for me to hand wave it all as that, because it makes no sense if you try and look too hard at it. Just like Kevin looking at the Leviathan tablet. It just makes no sense. It just gives him a headache and starts wobbling and making a ringing noise in his ears. Okay. That's how it is. (laughs) Anyway, moving on. Cass has been variously lumped in with the grunts and foot soldiers by his actual superiors, who very often underestimate him, including Hester, and next season, Naomi. And when Sam asks Cass why those angels are pissed at them now, Cass ignores him completely and reverts to talking about the unhappy dogs. Dean threatens to pull the car over and demands answers. Why are those angels after them? Cass responds to Dean's anger with confusion over why he's angry, and because he remembers the last time that Cass flapped off at the first sign of conflict, Dean carefully rewords his request and forces himself to calm down and, quote, stay on target. At least Cass finally answers directly. He tells them that the angels are only following protocol, that when the word of God is revealed, a keeper of the word will awaken, and he boops Kevin's nose again. Kevin swats his hand away. Their job is to take the keeper to the desert to learn the word of God away from men, which obviously would make it impossible for them to learn how to stop Dick Roman, and that's sort of priority number one at the moment before the Leviathan eat their way through humanity. 
Cass actually gives them their next course of action. If they want the word, they'll have to duck Hester and her soldiers. Sam asks if Cass is in their corner, and he confidently says, No, I don't fight anymore. I watch the bees. And he's just staring out the front window of the car like even he doesn't fully believe this. But gosh darn it, he's sticking with that answer. He has committed to this bit, and he is not letting it go. At the cabin, they're warding the place, and Cass suggests leaving off angel-proofing sigils so that he won't be expelled from the cabin, too. They're just trying to make themselves invisible to the other angels. Dean takes Kevin down to the basement, which still has the chair with the chains on it that they used to hold Chet the Leviathan way back when Bobby was still alive. Ah, nostalgia. But poor Kevin freaks out, wondering if this is a sex torture dungeon. Back upstairs, Cass is examining random objects without any attempt to act in a normal fashion. And he asks why Sam seems troubled. But Cass can't leave well enough alone and adds that, well, it is a primary aspect of Sam's personality and he usually ignores it. Sam just sort of accepts that. You know, primary aspect, troubled. Yeah, it kind of sums up his life. And tries to be serious anyway. He's mostly worried about Cass. Sam knows that he would have died if Cass hadn't taken that burden from him. And Sam is worried that Cass was still seeing Lucifer. Cass admits he did it first, but now he sees everything. And he says it in a rather wide-eyed wonder all while Meg watches from across the room and then sort of turns her back on them and disappears into the shadow. And Cass admits that he would have been done for, too, if he hadn't taken on Sam's pain. It gave him a distraction from the weight of guilt of everything he'd done. And Sam cuts him off and assures Cass that they know he only ever tried to help and that they're all grateful to him for it now. And Sam says they'll all do whatever it takes to help him get better. And Cass just looks confused. What do you mean, better? Like he has no concept that he's effectively completely disengaged from reality. And suffering through Sam's pain helped him reach that point. Which again, says an awful lot about Sam, too. And how he'd handled most of his year of hallucifering. Sam mostly tried to ignore it. He tried to pretend he wasn't getting worse, that his hallucinations could just be made to vanish by squeezing his hand. He downplayed his problems at every turn until they were the only thing he had left, and none of his coping strategies worked anymore. So I think it's interesting to note that about Sam, when it's so often Dean that fandom accuses of ignoring his problems. Sam is literally where Cass learned this disengage and deflect strategy that he'll use for most of the rest of Season 7. Meanwhile, down in the basement, Kevin has a little breakdown. He goes on a rant about how he isn't prepared to factor the supernatural into his worldview, while he hyperventilates into a brown bag that Dean gives him. Dean calmly laments his own situation. And gosh, it's bleak. There's no point in asking why you were chosen, because the angels don't care. Dean doesn't think they even have the equipment to care. And because of Cass, 
and what he's seen happen to him. Dean says it seems like when the angels try to care, it only breaks them apart. And gosh, is Dean personally feeling responsible for that? Like his demands on Cass from the start are what landed Cass in this position at all. Pushing Cass to choose humanity and the world over his heavenly mission and orders. Forcing Cass to participate in his acts of free will and trying to get him to choose his side. Dean feels personally responsible. And I can't overstate that that is a major turning point in how the narrative of Supernatural works and what Cass's character means and this conflict that will last until the, you know, second to last episode of this entire series (laughs) when Dean finally realizes that Cass had this capability to feel all along. Jensen's even said in interviews that, you know, He always just assumed that Cass didn't even have this ability to feel. And it's from lines like this that he delivered. That's how he played Dean all these years. He might care deeply for Cass, might love Cass to death. Cass is his best friend in the universe, you know. But Dean stops putting that sort of pressure on Cass to participate in the same way after this. Because he feels like Cass just can't engage that way without it shattering him like this. And he'd rather have Cass in whatever way he can get him than to have him destroyed like this by trying to demand something that Cass clearly does not have the capacity to give. And it's just another tragedy of the whole human Cass arc that Dean was prevented from interacting with him more as a human and that Cass was prevented from believing that Dean would want to interact with him as a human instead of needing to feel useful again. And I am so far off tangent at this point already, but this is the foundation of all of that going forward. So I just like to point it out. Anyway, back to where I was in the script, if I can remember where I was in the script. Anyway, Kevin just wanted to be the first Asian American president of the United States. Dean tells him to do his homework then, as if transcribing that tablet is his key to being able to get back to his life. But I mean, if Kevin's a creative writer, does he have the subject matter for days for his college essay? If he can manage to convey any of this without looking like a complete nut job, that is. I mean, the real world thinks he's been abducted, so maybe write a story about how he evaded his captors, and that's that's a pretty dramatic thing to write about. If he can just translate it into fiction, he'd, he'd get into any university he wants. Meanwhile, Meg has snuck out of the cabin to meet up with those two demons from the gas station. They want to know why they shouldn't just haul her off directly to Crowley to cash in on a payday. She tells them that she has something much better to give Crowley, the angel who double-crossed him. The demons don't want to believe her, they think Cass is dead, and Meg discovers it's just these two demons. They didn't tell anyone else they were meeting up with her, so she kills them both. She was actually acting in loyalty to Cass, which honestly says a lot for her. When she sneaks back into the cabin, she gets herself stuck in a devil's trap and is confronted by Sam and Dean, as well as Castiel, who is guiltily studying his shoes. They'd expected her to return with an army from Crowley, and Dean demands that she hand over the demon knife, which she does. 
She tells them that she just saved them all from these two demons who were ready to turn them in when she could have just as easily handed them all over to save herself. Cass confirms that she's telling the truth, that there's the blood from two other demons on that knife. She explains her simple life philosophy, find a cause and give herself over to it completely. Before, it was serving Lucifer, but now it's bringing down Crowley. Dean tells her that Crowley isn't the problem this year, and she says that he's always the problem, that he's just waiting for the best time to strike. And she knows Sam, Dean, and Cass are pretty much the only allies that she has in that fight. She's not about to do them dirty. It's interesting to watch Cass repeatedly drift over toward wherever Dean moves in this scene, too. Like, he just can't help himself and gravitates toward Dean. But they reluctantly believe Meg, and Sam breaks the devil's trap. Cass is delighted by this more congenial turn in the course of events, and says now their only problem is Hester, because while they might be hidden inside the cabin, killing those two demons put out a pretty clear beacon on their location. Meg hadn't factored that into her calculations, and says they need better angel-proofing now. But it's already too late. The door blows off the cabin, and Hester appears behind them all, along with a handful of angel guards. She's horrified and accusatory about how they could have taken the profit from them. Cass tries to apologize, but Hester tells him he's fallen in every way imaginable. Anias pleads for his help to follow the code, and asks for Cass to help them do their job. It's as if all the angels believe this whole plan to take the prophet had been Castiel's, like they can't even conceive of humans having concocted that plan or stood in Cass's way to take the prophet themselves. Cass's behavior is truly alien to these angels. He's fallen in every conceivable way, you know? Dean says that Cass can't help anybody, and Hester declares that they don't need Cass's help or his permission. She gives a nod, and Anias disappears and returns a moment later with the very freaked-out-looking Kevin. And Hester declares that they are taking the prophet to the desert. Dean barks out that they're trying to clean up one of her angel's messes, and Cass reluctantly agrees even though he talks about what he did in the third person, as if it was some other angel that Dean had tried to talk out of releasing the Leviathan. Dean demands a little more time. He assures Hester that they'll take care of the prophet. But as pissed as Hester is with Cass, she's even more pissed at Dean. She doesn't think that they should give Dean anything, blaming him personally for everything that's befallen them. And we get the tragically awful line, The very touch of you corrupts. When Castiel first laid a hand on you in hell, he was lost. For that, you're going to pay. And Dean's already feeling guilt about this. Talked about it, went off on my last tangent about it. But Hester walks toward Dean like she's about to smite him. Cass pulls her away, saying that humans are the ones that they're supposed to protect. And instead, she lets out all her wrath on Cass, pummeling him while insisting that there will be no more madness, no more promises, and no more new gods. 
Sam and Dean try to interfere, but they're held off by the other angels. Hester raises her angel blade and is about to kill Cass when Anias runs to his rescue, holding her arm back and begging her not to because there's so few angels left. She just punches him in the face and tells Cass that he's the one who wanted free will, but now she's making the choices. And as she's about to kill him, Hester is stabbed from behind by Meg, who has once again just saved their asses. Cass looks up at Meg, confused and maybe a little hurt by her actions, and Meg's just like, what, someone had to do it? And Cass resigns himself to it. Later on, Cass stands talking with Anias about how strange a time it is. And Cass replies that it was probably always strange, they just, you know, didn't really notice. Anias invites Cass back to the garrison with them, but Cass declines. He's no longer part of it. And it feels like a release, even if it's currently coming from his abject refusal to fight, or, as we'll learn later, to return to heaven to see what he made of the place. And we won't learn that for another dozen episodes or so, but it's good to remember why Cass is currently in complete denial of everything and refusing to engage in reality. Kevin has completed the translation, though, and Sam and Dean thank him. Anias is now in charge and instructs the other two angels to return Kevin to his home. They can watch over him there. A kinder and gentler heaven, where they're not going to haul him out to the desert. <laughs> when they're gone, it's just Sam, Dean, and Cass. Dean can't find Meg anywhere, and Cass replies with a smile that she enjoys lay glow. Meanwhile, Sam's found the relevant point in the notes about how to kill the Leviathan. They need a bone of a righteous mortal washed in the three bloods of the fallen, starting with the blood of a fallen angel. Cass cheerfully manifests the bottle and fills it with his blood as he tells them he's always happy to bleed for the Winchesters. And gosh, isn't that line just agonizing? I think I included a long post about that in the links for this episode, so I'm not going to devolve into wailing about it here. And I think it's like one of those lines that gets really taken out of context in fandom and used for a wide variety of fun fandom purposes, but in the context of what it actually means for Cass in canon, again, please reference my related posts that I have appended to this podcast. Thank you. <laughs> Dean eventually asks Cass what he's going to do now. As far as they know, they have what they needed from him, and they're not about to make him stay and fight against his will, even if this is his mess they're cleaning up. We're on the road to forgiveness here, but we don't have to pile drive it, you know? We don't have to just pound Cass into submission by violating his free will now. Cass just grins and says that he has no idea what he's going to do. And isn't that amazing? And then he disappears. So yeah, he might be in complete denial and avoiding taking responsibility for anything, but he's also getting his very first taste of what real free will looks like. And I'm happy about that for his sake, even as I'm depressed on Dean's behalf because Cass didn't even offer to stick around and help or just hang out for a while. He just leaves as if he's not leaving a hole in their lives again. But they've got work to do anyway, 
So Sam and Dean set out to get what they need to take down Dick. Back at the Tran house, Kevin's mom is distressed as she talks to a fed in a suit, who tries to tell her to trust them, not to worry. Kevin and the two angels appear suddenly, and he assures his mom that they brought him back and are keeping him safe. The man in the suit says that he doesn't believe that's true. He walks over to the two angels, kills them both, as we learn that angels have no power over leviathans. And then the man in the suit transforms back into Edgar the Leviathan, and things are very suddenly not looking good for Kevin Tran. But that's how the episode ends. And there we have it. I think I already talked myself blue about this one, and if I forgot anything at this point, I have included copious notes and references in the post this week. I've also started tossing all my scripts for these episodes over on AO3 for reference purposes, and included a link to those as well. So you can see just how many typos I actually make in these notes, and then don't bother to fix them because... I correct them as I speak them aloud, hopefully, mostly, and go off on tangents a lot. (laughs) I think I'll save most of the talk about Cass and Honey and his general state of mind until later, too, when it makes more sense and feels less agonizing and hopeless to talk about. Because right now, the Winchesters have a different mission first. They have no idea that Kevin is even in danger yet, but if the plan they're actually working on pans out, And we know it does, because we've seen this before. They'll find that out soon enough. But first, they need to collect those other two bloods of the fallen and fetch themselves a nice bone. Which they'll set out to do in next week's episode. Season 7, episode 22, There Will Be Blood. Because of course there will be blood, when the spell they need to get Dick requires a lot of blood. Tell us something we don't know, show. Until then... You can find me on Tumblr at MittensMorgul or at SPNGeorge. You can find me on Blue Sky and Discord as MittensMorgul. Or you could email me at MittensMorgul at gmail.com. And I look forward to talking to everybody again real soon. I spent so much time this week putting all, I think, something like 90 or so episodes on uh, AO3. <laughs> My notes just started out so sad. Now I'm far more conscious when I'm reading these scripts that I write for myself of just how many typos I make and how much I fix on the fly and how many of my sentences don't make sense and I just reword them as I go. Never bother to correct the typos because why, you know, I'm the only one who ever saw them. So now I'm having like, oh my God, people are going to see that I actually type like this. Jesus Christ. (laughs) I swear I can type better when I'm like writing fiction, but when I'm trying to write podcast notes, it's... I I stop caring about, like, grammar and punctuation and spelling and all that because, you know, I swear I can type good. I really can. Just not for this. So apologies again about what my notes actually look like. It's really embarrassing and terrible. But, you know, at least everybody can see them now. Whatever. I don't know if that's a bonus or a benefit for anyone, but, you know, it is what it is. Anyway, have a good one, everyone.